Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 23. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 23. We're going to be picking up at verse 47 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 56. So Luke 23, 47 through 56, you'll find these verses on page 884 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Last Sunday, as we continued to make our way through Luke's Gospel, we focused on the events immediately prior to Jesus' death, the darkness that covered the whole land from noon until three o'clock, the the tearing of the curtain in the temple, and Jesus' final prayer as He committed His Spirit into His Father's hand. This morning, our focus is going to be on the events immediately following Jesus' death, the reaction of those who were there, and particularly the, the reactions of the centurion who oversaw the crucifixion, as well as the efforts of one man to give Jesus a proper burial. And finally, the rest that the woman took in accord with the commandment as they waited for their opportunity to anoint his body. Let us read the account together, Luke 23, beginning at verse 47. This is the very Word of God. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we do come before You humbly asking that You would open our eyes this morning, that You would grant us grace to see Your Son, to see in Him, despite appearances, despite His crucifixion, Father, that You would allow us to see in Him our only true and certain hope. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first Star Wars movie, which I suppose most of you have probably seen, a movie which was somewhat confusingly known as Episode Four, a farm boy named Luke Skywalker and a debt-ridden smuggler named Han Solo find themselves on the premier space station of the Galactic Empire, known as the Death Star, trying to rescue a young princess named Leah, 
who has been taken prisoner because of her support for some rebellion. Needless to say, their prospects of success aren't good. They, they simply do not have what they need to pull off the rescue. And this becomes clear very quickly as shortly after they break the princess out of her cell, they end up in a trash compactor. Shortly before they jump into the trash compactor, the princess complains, this is some rescue. When you came in here, didn't you have a plan for getting out? It's a fair question. Trusting a farm boy and a smuggler to rescue a princess from the clutches of an empire appears to be utterly foolish. Better if she had just remained in her cell. And of course, it is foolish unless things aren't as they appear, unless this farm boy happens to be the last Jedi. In some ways, that's a picture of the gospel. Paul says that the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It is utterly foolish to trust a man from Galilee who was rejected by the authorities of his own nation and crucified by the Roman state. It is utterly foolish to trust such a one to rescue you from sin and death. Unless, of course, things aren't as they appear to be. And that's exactly what Luke is trying to help us see here in these verses. In these verses, he he wants us to begin to see that things are not as they appear. Despite appearances, the man whose dead body hangs upon the cross is, in fact, our only hope. Despite appearances, He is the God-appointed Savior of the world. We see this first in the reaction of the centurion who was there that day. We see it secondly in the action of this man from Arimathea who, who works to give Jesus a proper burial. We see it thirdly in the Sabbath rest of the women who came with Him from Galilee. I want us to consider each of these more carefully this morning. So let's begin with the reaction of the centurion. Look again at, at what we're told. Luke writes that now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The reaction of the crowd was somewhat different. Luke tells us they had gathered for the, the spectacle, but when they saw what had taken place, They returned home beating their breasts. In other words, the the crowd's reaction is something like, what did we just do? Have you ever had a moment like that? Have you ever had that, that feeling where you're just asking yourself, what did I just do? Maybe it's immediately after doing something, or for me, more, more likely, immediately after just saying something. You, you've said something, something has come out of your mouth, and immediately you realize it was a mistake, or, or worse. You, you realize that it was just plain wrong. It's an experience I've had more times than I care to admit. And that's the reaction of the crowd. The the crowd's reaction is that to the nth degree. When they see Jesus die, they realize the horror of what they have just been a part of. They realize the, the evil of what they have just done. 
And they go home beating their breasts. I wonder which reaction, the the centurions or the, the crowds, you find to be more logical, more reasonable given the circumstances. If you're anything like me, I I suspect it's the reaction of the crowd. After all, they they have just witnessed the murder of an innocent man. They had just watched Rome, under pressure from the local Jewish authorities, use its power to kill a man who they knew was innocent, a man who had been declared innocent at trial, but a man whom the authorities simply didn't like. And not only had they witnessed his murder with some sort of glee, but they had even participated by joining their voices to the mob that had called for his blood. Therefore, given all that had taken place, it it makes perfect sense for the crowd to be overcome by shame and by, by guilt and by Regret. It makes perfect sense for them to, to go home shaking their heads, wondering, what have we done? What doesn't make sense, at least at first, is the reaction of the centurion. Notice what Luke says. He says, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. Now, doesn't that seem odd? Doesn't it seem odd for the centurion to praise God having witnessed the murder of an innocent man? Doesn't it seem odd for that to lead him into worship? Would it not have been more natural for such an injustice to to cause him to to question God, to, to question his goodness, to question his wisdom, to question his power? Where were you, God? How could you let this happen? This man was innocent. These are the questions that we would naturally want to ask. How then do we explain the fact that that seeing what had taken place, this centurion praised God? Well, to answer that, I think we have to remember what it is that the centurion has has seen, and, and particularly what it is that he has heard. In Luke's account of, of Jesus' crucifixion, he, he gives us four moments where Jesus speaks. The first comes in verses 28 through 31 when Jesus addresses the women who were mourning and lamenting him. And you may remember what he said to them. He he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. What is he he saying? He, He is asserting that despite appearances, he was not the one to be pitied. Rather, it was the bystanders, the the witnesses who were to be pitied, for they were the ones who would soon face the judgment of God. Next, we, we hear Jesus speak in verse 34 when he prays for those who are crucifying him. You remember his prayer. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, what's the implication? The the implication is that it is those who seem to be in control, those who who seem to be conducting this execution, it it is those who are truly in trouble. It is those who will soon face the wrath of God. And so Jesus prays for their forgiveness. Jesus prays that, that the Father will not treat them as their sins deserve. But in those first two statements, there's a there's a second implication. 
Not only is Jesus saying that that those who, who seem to be controlling the situation are in trouble, but he is also praying from a position of security, a position of of love. He's not to be pitied. He's in a position to forgive. As Jesus hangs upon the cross, he is utterly confident in his Father's love. He prays as one who is right with God. Despite appearances, Jesus is the one in right relationship to the Heavenly Father. And this implication is, is further reinforced by Jesus' third statement. We, we see it in verse 43. Jesus says to the repentant thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now when we look at that statement, we normally focus on the fact that, that he is offering salvation to this dying thief, and that is right and that is good. That's something that we should see, but, but don't miss the fact that Jesus himself is confident that he will also be in paradise. Thus, his his confidence is not so much implied as explicitly stated, today I will be going to my Father. And of course, we see this confident hope yet again in verse 46 with, with Jesus' dying prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So what is it that the centurion has has seen and heard over the course of, of Jesus' crucifixion? Again and again he has seen a man and he has heard a man whose faith in God remains unshaken. A man who knows that he is in right relationship to his heavenly Father. And therefore I think it may be better to to translate the centurion's statement as righteous rather than innocent. That's actually the way the word is normally translated. This is the same word that that Jesus uses when he describes the righteous who do not need repentance, or when he describes those who, who trust in themselves and think that they are righteous because of their own works. In a legal setting, it, it can mean innocent, but, but most often It's a word that that is translated as righteous. Most often it means one who is right, in right standing. One who, in particular, is right with God. And I think it is this righteousness of God, his, his right relationship with the Father that the centurion saw, and that is what moved him to praise God. You see, in Jesus, the centurion saw one who, who despite appearances was righteous, and one to whom the Father remained faithful even to the end. Jesus, for a moment, under the wrath of his Father, cried out, Why have you forsaken me? But he was not left there. And in the end, his dying prayer was, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. This is why, according to Matthew, Jesus, or the centurion, also said not only this man was righteous, but that he was truly the Son of God. It's not just that he was innocent of the charges that had been brought against him, but he was righteous. And God gave the centurion the eyes to see it. And so, the question is, do we see what he saw. 
Do we see what the centurion saw? In Jesus, do we see one who is righteous? Admittedly, it can be hard to see in the mess of this life. We, we see the, the difficulty of, of seeing Jesus accurately in the stunned silence of the acquaintances and the, the women who, who Luke tells us stood at a distance watching these things. It seems to me that they simply didn't know what to make of what they had seen. They were confused. They were befuddled. They were, they were dumbfounded. They, they had hoped that he was the one and yet now they don't know. They're confused. That's the the response of those who who stood at a distance watching. And it reminds us that, yes, it can be hard to see Jesus for who He is as He hangs upon the cross. But when we see it, it changes everything. God's faithfulness to Jesus, Jesus' right relationship to the Father, even on the cross, is our assurance that our faith in Christ will not put us to shame. Would you trust a farm boy to rescue you from the empire? Would you trust a crucified man from Galilee to rescue you from the holy wrath of God? It seems like folly. But when we see Jesus as the righteous one, we begin to understand, no, He is the one put forward by the Father. He is the one sent to save us. And we can trust in Him even when everything in life suggests the opposite. It's what Paul said. It's it's foolishness to the Greeks, stumbling block to to the Jews. But things are not as they appear. We see this in the centurion's confession. May, may God give us eyes to see what he saw. But it's not only in the, the centurion's confession. We, we also see this in the actions taken by this man from Arimathea, this man named Joseph. Luke tells us in verse 50 that he was a member of the council, that that is the the council that had arrested Jesus, the the council that had convicted him on false evidence, the council that had delivered him over to Pilate, demanding that he be crucified. But of course Luke tells us that that he was a good and righteous man, that he, he had not consented to their decision and their action. But more than this, he tells us that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Think for a moment about what that means. What does it mean to say that that he was looking for the kingdom? It would suggest that that he was expectantly waiting for the Messiah. He was was looking for the long-promised Savior who would reestablish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He was waiting for the coming king. He was waiting for for David's greater son. He was waiting for the one who would sit upon David's throne forever and ever. The one who had time and again been foretold by the prophets. You've heard the words. You you hear them every year at, at Christmas. Joseph was looking for the one who would bear the government upon his shoulders. Joseph was looking for the one of whom it was said, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
The prophet Isaiah had said that the zeal of the Lord of hosts would do this. That the zeal of the Lord would, would bring the one who would establish David's throne again and establish it forever and ever. And Joseph was, was waiting. He was waiting for that coming kingdom. He, he knew that God would keep his promises. But even more than this, the other Gospels tell us that, that he actually believed that Jesus was the one. He was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. He, he believed that Jesus was the coming king. He, he was reluctant to make public his faith because he was a member of the council. He was, he was fearful. He was weak. But he saw Jesus for who he was. And so now we must ask, what, what must have he been thinking when Jesus died upon the cross. I suspect that up to the last moment he was holding out hope that, that Jesus would snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, that, that at the last moment Jesus would use his known power to save himself and defeat his enemies. But then he died. He, he, he died upon the cross. What must Joseph have been thinking at that moment? It's impossible to say for sure, but we know that his faith, while shaken, was not completely shattered. For what we know is that after Jesus died, he went to Pilate and he asked for the body so that he could give him a proper burial. I'm not sure what he was thinking exactly, but, but despite his disappointment, he, he did not despise Jesus. He did not hold him in, in contempt, but, but rather, even in the midst of his confusion, he still wanted to honor him. We're told that when he had received the body from Pilate, he, he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone, a tomb where no one else had ever been laid. And of course, these, these details are recorded on purpose. They they teach us something. The first thing that we are to notice is that he had to ask Pilate for the body. This is, this is important because it debunks any theory that, that suggests that Jesus didn't actually die. You, you, you've heard it said that maybe he just swooned upon the cross and then he revived in the cool of the, of the cave. That's utterly absurd and doesn't really need to be debunked. Even if he had been crucified, there's no way he would have been walking around three days later. But... Despite the absurdity of it, it's also impossible because the Romans knew when someone was dead. And remember, when, when Joseph comes to Pilate asking for the body, Pilate was surprised that, Pilate, that Jesus should already be dead. And he, he sent soldiers to confirm that he was dead. So, so there's no possibility that, that Jesus was not actually dead upon the cross. But there's more going on here than just this. The Gospels don't tend to give us extraneous details, and so, therefore, we may assume that it's significant that, that the tomb that Jesus was laid in was a, was a new tomb, a tomb where no one had ever yet been laid. Why does Luke give us that detail? I believe he intends us to see it as the first hints of Jesus' vindication. Jesus was crucified as a criminal, but he received the burial of a righteous man, even the burial of a prince, one wealthy enough to have his own tomb. Historical records tell us that those who were 
crucified in Rome often received no burial at all. Their, their bodies were often just left hanging upon their crosses to be seen by all as they were ravaged by the elements and torn by birds and, and beasts. It was a way that Rome deterred others from following in their footsteps. But during times of peace, Rome would allow those who were crucified to be buried. But when they were buried, they were usually buried in unmarked mass graves. That's what would have been expected. That's not what happened to Jesus' body. Not only was his body taken down, as Luke says in verse 53, but it was wrapped in linen and, and placed in a freshly cut tomb. Such a burial for one who died on a Roman cross is so unlikely that many historians today simply are unwilling to believe it. They are unwilling to believe the, the veracity of Luke's account. The, the burial is so implausible it must be made up, they say. May I suggest that they are exactly missing the point. The implausibility is the point. Immediately after his death, Jesus is already being vindicated by his father through the work of Joseph of Arimathea. And it's important for us to see this because, again, it reassures us that we can put our trust in Jesus. We can entrust ourselves to the crucified one. The one who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation will not be put to shame, even as Jesus himself was not put to shame. To the world, it looks foolish to put your hope in a crucified Savior. But in Jesus' burial, we get the first hint that God's plan has not failed. Despite appearances, the, the anointed one has not fallen short. He has not failed to complete his mission. But just to the contrary, through his death, he has perfectly finished the work of redemption that he came to do. Of course, at this point, his, his vindication is only a hint. The full confirmation is, is yet to come. We will see it in full next Sunday. But for now, take courage, knowing that Jesus was given a proper burial. That Jesus was, was vindicated as the beloved Son, as the anointed Savior. That we can put our trust in Him and know that we will not be put to shame. This then brings us to the third and, and final clue that Luke gives us here in this passage. We, we've seen that Jesus is a trustworthy Savior first in the, the reaction of the centurion. We've seen it secondly in the, the action taken by Joseph of Arimathea to give him a, a proper burial. And now we, we see it thirdly in the women as they rest on the Sabbath day in accord with the commandment. As we'll see this too, is meant to show us something. It's meant to show us that God's work of redemption, far from being foiled, far from being thwarted through Jesus' death, has actually been completed. In verse 54, Luke tells us that as Joseph took steps to have Jesus' body properly buried, it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. That is, it was fast approaching sunset on Friday. 
And so the group of women who had come with him from Galilee, the group of women who had stood at a distance at the cross, this this group of women now watches as as Joseph takes his body and lays it in the tomb. They, They watch so that when the time comes, they will be able to anoint it with oil and with spices. But they can't do it yet because the Sabbath is beginning. And according to the commandment, they must rest. Why does Luke tell us this? Why, why does Luke give us this detail? As I said, there are no extraneous details in the Gospels. So, so what is the significance of the women resting on the Sabbath? To answer that question, I think we, we need to know the significance of the Sabbath itself. And we begin with just what Luke tells us. The Sabbath was a commandment. It was one of the ten given to the people of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, the the fourth of those Ten Commandments, required people to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It was a a day for resting from all of your work. What was the purpose of such a a command? Why, Why were the people commanded to rest on the Sabbath day? I want to suggest to you that the, the purpose of this rest was to give expression to the people's faith in the faithfulness of God. In that Day resting from your work was an act of faith. It, it took faith to, to rest from the labors that, that daily put food on your table and kept a roof over your head. It was an act of faith in God's faithfulness, trusting Him to provide. By resting on the Sabbath, the, the people were testifying that their well-being did not ultimately depend upon their own efforts but upon the gracious provision of Yahweh, their heavenly Father. So in this way, the Sabbath was a reminder of Eden. Remember, the first Sabbath rest was actually God's rest. After finishing His work of creation, we are told in Genesis 2-2 that God rested on the seventh day from His work that He had done. Now why does God rest? God doesn't get tired. He he isn't worn out by his, His efforts. Why then does God rest? He rests because His work is complete. He rests because things are now as they are supposed to be. Things are good, even very good. Things are perfectly suited to meet all the needs of the ones whom He has created to be His vice regents over creation. But of course, things don't stay that way. Man had had been created to live forever in God's perfect rest. But through sin and rebellion, that rest was lost. Replaced by futile toil, marred by thorns and thistles, ultimately subject to death and decay. It's where we live. We live in this thorn and thistle world. We we live in this world of futility. We feel it every day. Sabbath rest has been lost. And God gives the people of Israel, His chosen people, a day of rest to remind them of what was. But it's not just a taunt. He's not only reminding them of what was lost. It is also a picture 
of what God has planned for his people, a picture of what he plans to restore to them. From one perspective, we can say that God's plan of salvation was designed to bring his people back into Sabbath rest. It's where he intends us to live. It is his goal for his people. And this is why the fourth commandment was called a gift. The weekly Sabbath given to Israel was meant to be for them a gracious foretaste of the salvation that God had planned for them. On the Sabbath, the the people remembered that it was not ultimately up to them, that it was not ultimately their work, that they weren't trying to sustain themselves, but that they were sustained and provided for by the, the Almighty God who owned the cattle on a thousand hills. On that Sabbath day, they got to experience the rest that comes from knowing that God will provide you with every good and perfect and necessary thing. And when we see this, when we we understand and remember what Sabbath is, it, it helps us to comprehend the significance of the women resting. Even after Jesus has died... The women rest on the Sabbath according to the commandment. It's a a reminder of what the author of Hebrews says. The the promise of entering his rest still stands. God's good purpose for his people. God's purpose of, of bringing them into his perfect Sabbath rest. It had not been thwarted by Jesus' death. But just the opposite. Jesus' death had secured the blessing that he always had planned for his people. And for this reason, the women rest immediately following his his death. They they probably didn't understand the significance of what they were doing. They, They probably didn't see the change, at least not yet. But nevertheless, their rest was significant. And in their rest, we see that Jesus' death has secured the good that God has always had planned for His people. That's what I want you to see this morning. That we gather here to rest in the Lord's provision. We, We hear the Apostle Paul say that if He did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us every good thing? That is Sabbath rest. I know there's disagreement among God's people today about how you keep the fourth commandment. I don't want to get into that this morning. But, but however you keep it, I do want you to hear this. Keep it. Keep the Sabbath, for it is your foretaste of heaven. It is your foretaste of the salvation that has been sealed for you by the blood of your Savior. Because Christ died, your future is now secure. It's not up to you, but you now rest in the promised provision of a heavenly Savior who says that He will not fail to give you with Christ every good and necessary thing. This is our assurance. Despite appearances, despite the the, the crucifixion, actually because of the crucifixion, Jesus is our sure and certain hope. So let me ask you simply, do you see it? 
Do you see the profound truth of the centurion's confession? Do you see the the true significance of of Joseph giving him a, a proper burial? Do you see the wonder of the women resting on the Sabbath? I pray that you do. I pray that God would give us eyes to see this morning because, yes, as Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but to those who are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, because the the weakness of God is stronger than men, because Christ crucified is our sure and certain hope. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, Give us eyes to see. Father, when we see a crucified Savior, it would be so easy in our flesh to lose all hope. And we wonder what must have gone through the mind of his acquaintances, what must have gone through the mind of the women, what must have gone through the mind of of Joseph. As I saw his dead body being taken down from the cross and laid in the tomb, But Father, I thank you for the clues that you have given us that this is not the end of the story. That he died not forsaken, but he died loved. That we in him might become your beloved children. Father, may this gospel put down deep roots in our hearts and bring forth fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory, we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.